Welcome to The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. I'm Laurel Neme, your host for The Wildlife and also author of Animal Investigators, How the World's First Wildlife Forensic Lab is Solving Crimes and Saving Endangered Species. Today on The Wildlife, you'll hear my conversation with John Scanlon, the Secretary General of the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, also known as CITES. We'll talk about some of the main outcomes of the 16th Conference of Parties that was held in Bangkok, Thailand from March 3rd through March 14th, 2013. Among other things, you'll hear his perspective about the overall meeting, as well as on specific species, including tropical timber, sharks, elephants, and more. Now, here is my conversation with CITES Secretary General John Scanlon. In thinking back at this uh, Conference of Parties, how will this meeting be remembered? I think it'll be remembered in many different ways, and I think it'll be remembered in a very positive manner. Uh, There were sort of two aspects to the meeting you can look at. The the logistics, and that is uh, that we had an exemplary host government. Uh, We had exemplary arrangements for the meeting in terms of the preparation of documentation, the provision of uh, good analysis, uh, sound science to the parties to enable them as 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 a sovereign conference of the parties to take fully informed decisions. Um, the meeting actually ran very smoothly. Documentation, voting, uh, with the electronic voting system and several votes that went to a secret ballot, that all ran very smoothly. So I think um, in one sense the meeting will be remembered for the the very smooth manner in which it ran and the exemplary arrangements that were put into place by the host government, um, the uh, Kingdom of Thailand. Then on the other side of the agenda we have the whole substance of the meeting. Here, uh, let's remember that the parties to this convention worked through 161 working documents in nine days. That is one less day than they previously had available to, to deal with matters. So they dealt with a, a huge agenda in terms of resolutions, decisions, and uh, proposals that they needed to consider. So there, I think, substantively, it was a, a really significant meeting. And if we look at the substance, I think what one thing that stands out is probably 90 or 95% of the matters were all dealt with by consensus. Uh, Rich debate, rich discussion, sharing of different viewpoints, but ultimately with the overwhelming majority of the uh, 161 working documents that were dealt with by the Conference of the Parties, they reached a decision by consensus. And the occasions on which uh, the parties needed to go to a vote uh, were quite limited. So I think it will be remembered as, um, in my view, a watershed moment in the convention. I think we saw um, major decisions taken with respect to listing proposals. Uh, All of the plant proposals, including commercially valuable timbers, went through by consensus. And then the parties, by a two-third majority, decided to um, bring under the control of the convention uh, commercially valuable uh, marine species that are traded in uh, in uh, high volume. Uh, we also had many other issues. I'm sure we'll deal with them through the course of the um, of this interview. But we should always remember, maybe also remember that we had 65 side events. And that's very unusual for a CITES conference of the parties to have so many side events uh, addressing a very wide uh, range of issues, uh, including enforcement, uh, including issues to do with uh, rhinos, elephants, um, financing. Um, trade in tropical timbers, uh, electronic permitting, I could go on. So um, uh, a really substantive meeting uh, to celebrate our 40th anniversary. And if you remember, the first 
plenipotentiary, or the plenipotentiary, I should say, that was held in 1973, and we were celebrating the 40th anniversary of the signing of the convention. It was called the World Wildlife Conference, and I think our 40th anniversary uh, reflected that. It was the World's Wildlife Conference where the whole world came together in one place at one time to discuss issues to do with wildlife, uh, both in terms of formal sessions and in terms of uh, a very uh, wide array of side events. Now, this emphasis on consensus, was that a change from the past? I don't know I'd necessarily say an emphasis on com consensus. I think th what's interesting is the fact that there was consensus uh, on the vast majority of issues that were discussed, I'd estimate 90 to 95% in terms of the, the volume of of matters that were before the conference of the parties. So what it shows is there is a convergence um, on a number of issues, some of which had uh, historically been uh, somewhat contentious. But what we're finding is that there is now a consensus position on, on a number of issues that in the past might have generated uh, a little bit more um, um, division and may have uh, resulted in issues going to the vote. So it's a very positive sign that um, our parties, and we now have more parties, we have 178, are converging uh, by way of consensus on particular, on particular issues. Now, one of those that used to be much more controversial, and you said passed uh, by consensus, was the commercially valuable timber. And is this, a, this is a shift from the past. It is a shift from the past. It was previously one that did uh, give rise to some differing opinions, uh, some level of um, concern by some parties. But what we've seen is the convention has evolved to a point where I think all parties now recognise the value of CITES in um, um, addressing international trade in commercially valuable timbers. Um, we've seen range states at this conference of the parties put forward their commercially valuable timber species to the parties, asking them to be listed. Um, and we've seen, I think, um, a great interest from other organisations, which I think has, has uh, been a, a major factor in terms of shift of opinion, and that is the International Tropical Timber Organisation, the ITTO. Um, it has invested uh, heavily in CITES and in um, assisting parties to CITES effectively implement uh, the listing of commercially valuable uh, timber species. Now, they've done that together with CITES. We have a joint project, ITTO CITES, had very good support from the donor community, uh, the major donor being the European Union, but there have been many other, other donors from across all regions. Um, so what we've seen is through this work with the ITTO and CITES on implementing listings, uh, we've seen that CITES works, and in fact, it's a value-add proposition. It works very well, and it does assist states ensure that uh, international trade in their timber products is uh, legal, namely it's in accordance with uh, national law, it's sustainable, and it's traceable. So I think that the proof of the pudding has been in the eating there. Um, listings uh, have seemed to be valuable. We showcased one example that is uh, in Cameroon with the African cherry and the harvesting of the bark. It's used for medicinal purposes. Uh, so I think we've got you know very good case studies that demonstrate the worth of the convention, and I think that's why it's less contentious now uh, it's range states wanting to list, and I think all parties see that there is great value in uh, bringing these species under the control of CITES. And then you said um, assuring that international trade in timber products is legal, sustainable, and traceable. How does the traceable aspect work? Well, there are two aspects of traceability. One is 
just the formal requirement under the convention, and that is a requirement that you report all trades. That's the annual report under CITES. It's, a, it's an annual report containing details of trade. So if there is trade taking place, it needs to be reported to the Secretariat. Um, we compile that through our partnership with UNEPWCMC, and it's all made available on our website. So you can see details of all imports and exports uh, of CITES-listed species. But beyond that, there's the issue of traceability, um, which is much deeper. And this is some work we're doing with the ITTO in particular, but also with others. Um, and that is, how do you uh, ensure that uh, a timber uh, product has uh, actually been sourced from where it's said to have been sourced? Uh, how do you track it from uh, the field uh, to the market? And there's a lot of good work going on there. We've just released a report with ITTO on traceability. Um, which allows you as an importing state and also very much gets back to the consumer because that's what's driving this, the consumer wanting to be sure that these products are legally and sustainably sourced. So we're looking at all sorts of technologies there that go beyond the specific requirements of the convention but are, are very important in terms of um, access to markets and uh, consumers being satisfied with the uh, legality and sustainability of the uh, raw materials. And something I know that's related to the timber issue is this uh, passport for musical instruments. Yes, I think uh, that proposal was a, a very constructive one. As you know, we already have a, a passport-type system for falcons uh, that uh, go across international borders on multiple occasions. Uh, that experience has been drawn from in, in developing a similar system for musical instruments where... Uh, these instruments have been uh, legally acquired. They could be pre-convention or they could be uh, musical instruments that have uh, utilised Appendix 2 listed uh, species, in particular uh, talking here primarily about uh, wood. Um, so rather than ha having to get a permit every time to cross international borders, there will be a, a passport, uh, as I said, drawing upon the experience gained with the uh, falcons. And it's a very constructive thing because uh, the convention uh, should not frustrate uh, the legitimate um, movement of uh, goods across international borders. And if it does frustrate these sorts of movements without any benefit to anybody, uh, then it actually um, it doesn't help the convention at all. In fact, it frustrates people in terms of the way the convention applies. So, no, very positive, very constructive move there to provide a, a pragmatic way of enabling musical instruments to uh, travel with their owners across international borders without any um, unnecessary bureaucracy. Another notable outcome was related to marine species. And at the last uh, conference of parties in Doha, the marine species were very contentious and none of the shark species that had been proposed at that time were listed. And this time, um, those same sharks were accepted for listing. And so, you know, what's changed? Why the shift? So this discussion has been going on for some time. The uh, convention has uh, looked at marine species for a long time, including sharks. And in fact, CITES, while it didn't list a large number of sharks, had an interest in them. And it was, it was driving a lot of work, actually, that was going on in relation to uh, sustainable management and harvesting of sharks. As you know, we do already have, uh, did already have some sharks listed under the convention. The great white, the basking, uh, the whale shark were all listed, but they were not uh, commercially uh, utilised. So what we've seen here is, as you know, five shark species and the manta ray uh, all be brought under the control of the convention. But I think this debate has been evolving over several decades. Uh, the convention has already uh, been used for a number of marine species. 
Um, for example, the Queen Conk in the Caribbean has been used as an example where the convention has worked very successfully. And in fact, that was highlighted in a side event uh, at the uh, COP16. So we're seeing that there's also, again, you know, recognition that the convention uh, can work successfully with marine species. Also, I think what was interesting at this COP was that it appeared that all parties uh, accepted the, the science. So in terms of the current uh, status of the sharks and the manta ray that were proposed for listing, I think that there was no debate on the, the quality of the science or the scientific findings. The science had been presented at the last COP in Doha, came again at this COP, was probably even stronger. So the FAO expert panel advice was highly valuable uh, to the parties. And I think when you listen to the debate, that the science did not appear to be an issue. The science appeared to be accepted. Uh, uh, the debate really revolved around um, two key issues. Uh, one was whether or not management of these species ought to be left to the regional fisheries management organisations. And the second was issues to do with implementation and implementation challenges associated with um, regulating trade in these species under CITES. There were some references to livelihoods, but it didn't generate the same amount of debate as perhaps it did previously. So the outcome really reflected the thinking that CITES has a valuable role to play in regulating commercially valuable marine species. I think the parties have quite clearly expressed themselves by two-third majority that they do think that CITES is a complementary instrument uh, to the regional fisheries management organisations. It's not there to take over or subsume the role of anybody. Uh, we're seeing harvest-related and trade-related measures can coexist, and that was actually the outcome of an expert workshop held between FAO and CITES after the last COP uh, in Genazzano. We've also seen on the implementation side, um, a number of states uh, agree that they're going to provide support there. The European Union agreed to put 1.2 million through the CITES Secretariat to assist with implementation issues. The Brazilian delegation advised they'd have a regional workshop for the Caribbean, Central and South America uh, in order to uh, look at implementation issues. And we've also finally, after 40 years, uh, settled on a, an agreed definition of introduction from the sea. Just by way of explanation, introduction from the sea within the CITES context covers procedures countries need to follow when a CITES-listed species is taken in the marine environment that is not under the jurisdiction of any state. So there we have the introduction from the sea now clearly defined as a result of some very creative thinking done by the working group uh, that was chaired by Fabio Hazin. Um, and co-chaired by Roddy Gable. That working group really was uh, very creative in its thinking and did find a way forward that, in the end, um, went through the plenary without any attempt to reopen the discussion. So implementation issues in that respect dealt with some money on the table um, to help deal with implementation issues. The science very clear, and the parties by two-thirds majority have now decided that they do want to uh, use CITES as a complementary instrument. So I think it's um, really an evolution in some of the thinking that we've seen, but it goes back a long time, this discussion. So there are a multiplicity of factors that, that, that came to bear that resulted in this. And if you look at the proposals as well, the proposals on this occasion were coming from multiple states across uh, a number of regions. Uh, so you had uh, North Africa, Latin America and, and Europe uh, supporting uh, one of the proposals in particular. So toward the end, when um, everyone was back in the plenary, there was an attempt to reopen some of the debate. And is that typical? And how close really was it at that point? 
I don't think it's unusual to try and reopen a debate where the debate in the committee um, and the vote in the committee more particularly was very close. So the vote in committee one in particular on the oceanic white tip was very close. Um, on the others, uh, the voting majority was stronger. Um, and when we get to the manta ray, uh, I think there was 80% or thereabouts in favour of listing. But I don't think it's uh, necessarily unusual or to be unexpected that uh, those who are in the minority, especially where the vote was very close within the range of a, of a few votes, uh, would seek to reopen it um, and to have the discussion and see how the votes would pan out in full plenary. So there I'd say it's not unusual, it's not to be unexpected, um, and it is the right of any party to uh, seek to reopen a vote, um, uh, a discussion, sorry, in the plenary. And if uh, one third of parties agree, then it's reopened. On this occasion, uh, there was not the required one third majority in order to reopen the discussion. And so the um, recommendations of the committee were adopted. And then, um, so what is sort of what happens now? And, um, you know, can countries decide not to implement that decision? So the decision's now been taken and uh, all of those species will be listed under the convention. There was a delay in terms of the uh, listing coming into effect for 18 months to enable implementation issues to be satisfactorily addressed. So there's 18 months now we have to work with our parties uh, to assist them in preparing for uh, implementation of this. It is, as you know, under the convention uh, possible to enter a reservation. So uh, within 90 days, you can enter a reservation with respect to uh, the listing of a particular species. So that is open to any party should it choose to do so. Um, I don't believe that any party indicated during the course of the plenary discussion that they would be doing that, but nor, nor were they obliged to. They, they have the, the right under the convention to enter a reservation should they choose to. And does that happen often, that country parties will enter a reservation? And really, what prevents them from you know, entering a reservation on any decision they might disagree with? Well, it'd be a reservation on a listing. Um, but uh, there are a number of reservations that have been uh, entered to particular listings. They're all available on our website, so anybody can search where a reservation is in place. So it, it is open to, to parties to, to enter a reservation. Um, it has happened on occasion. I'd say it happens in a small number of cases relative to the number of species we have listed, uh, but it is open to a party to, to enter a reservation. And then, of course, I need to turn to elephants and rhinos, um, and many non-governmental organizations are calling this meeting a mixed bag for elephants. And in your opinion, what were some of the major successes? I think we saw unprecedented levels of uh, international cooperation at this COP. Uh, with respect to dealing with uh, enforcement-related issues, uh, combating illicit trade in wildlife, and elephants and rhino in particular. I think that uh, all parties were prepared to put aside uh, past differences in the interest of uh, speaking with one voice and speaking with one voice uh, to uh, take more uh, serious measures in combating the, uh, the illegal trade we're seeing in relation to the African elephant in particular and the African rhino in particular. So I think uh, we saw some significant outcomes there, both in the formal meeting itself, where uh, proposals to trade were withdrawn and other proposals to extend moratorium were withdrawn. I think what that said is that the African continent wanted to speak with one voice, but also the international community more broadly wanted to speak with one voice, uh, which in our view is a very positive thing because uh, the energy could be directed in the, in the right place. So I would say it was an extraordinarily... Uh, positive and constructive outcome from this meeting, 
Uh, we had proposals from Tanzania to open trade for one-off sales. We had proposal from Kenya and others to uh, reopen uh, previous decisions and extend a moratorium. And I think to the credit of, of all parties that were concerned, they decided not to proceed with those issues, which were going to be contentious on both sides. You know, whichever side of the debate you, you uh, uh, sit on, they were, they were both going to be contentious. And I think from where we sit, it was a, an extraordinarily positive outcome that uh, all parties agreed that they wanted to set aside past differences at this COP and focus on what enforcement measures we need to take collectively uh, in order to bring this uh, illegal killing and illegal trade to an end, or certainly to get us on a path to pull down these trends uh, between now and COP17, because what's going on is completely uh, unacceptable and, and needs to be brought to a stop. You know, I have to ask you, just given this uh, conversation, is that often there's some massive, brutal slaughter of elephants. And in this case, just as the meeting was closed, 86 elephants were killed in southwestern Chad. You know, is there anything CITES can do in these instances? And does it, you know, highlight what CITES can do is sort of limited? Well, we're dealing with an extremely difficult situation. We've got rebel militia groups. We've got on some occasions, very rare occasions, some rogue elements of the military. We've got organised criminals involved in this activity, this illegal killing of elephants to uh, to take their ivory and to illegally trade it. So, you know, we're up against a, a significant um, a significant um, opponent here. So it's not going to be easy. That's why this meeting focused very much on political engagement and enhancing operational effectiveness. So how did that play out at the meeting? There's a clear recognition that we need to work across source, transit and range states. We need to work together as an international community if we're going to uh, seriously combat these crimes, that we need to treat them as serious crimes, that we need to use, make better use of forensics and the sharing of forensic evidence, that we need to uh, start moving more aggressively towards uh, effective enforcement by way of prosecution, utilising the sort of techniques used to combat illicit trade in narcotics like controlled deliveries, um, better covert operations, using uh, legislation such as uh, anti-money laundering legislation to be able to impose heavier penalties. Um, these are all uh, measures that were uh, discussed and, and incorporated in a variety of, of different uh, decisions and resolutions. And then what about on the political level? So on the political level, we had side events where for the first time, we brought together ministers and other high-level representatives to have a, a discussion amongst themselves on transboundary wildlife crime, particularly focused on elephants and rhino. And that is, how do we ensure we've got significant enough and high enough political buy-in to this issue? Because we must have political buy-in at the highest possible level to say this is unacceptable and we're going to take uh, significant measures to stop it. So very good side of it. Then we also brought the wildlife enforcement networks from around the world together, recognising the need for regional cooperation. At the same time, we saw a number of decisions and resolutions uh, adopted that do the same. They they recognise that a at the highest level of our COP, namely through decisions and resolutions adopted by our COP, that this is a serious crime that we need to be more effective. Um, there are provisions in there about starting to deploy the sorts of techniques in combating wildlife crime that are used to combat uh, illicit trade in narcotics, for example. So we need to start looking at, you know, 
special investigative techniques like covert operations, etc. We need to look at uh, controlled deliveries. So don't regard a seizure as a success. You have to get beyond the seizure, find out who's the kingpin behind the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the demand and start prosecuting these people. We start, need to start better using anti-money laundering legislation because it carries heavier penalties. Um, we need to much better, make much better use of forensics, uh, DNA, sharing forensic evidence, in particular for large seizures when we're looking at um, uh, elephant ivory. We need to start prosecuting more effectively those uh, involved uh, in organised crime here. But there was also a recognition that we need to look at demand reduction. We need to look at community awareness. So at the same time as we go hard on enforcement, uh, we're also looking at how we can uh, take measures uh, to suppress demand. Now, all of these issues and more are captured in a suite of decisions and resolutions that were adopted by the Conference of the Parties. We saw through the Standing Committee that was further reinforced uh, with the eight principal states uh, in terms of range, transit and source states agreeing that they would uh, prepare national action plans with some specific, more specific activities that they would undertake with particular timeframes, and that would be uh, continually reviewed by the Standing Committee. So we've seen at this conference of the parties two areas uh, dealt with uh, very successfully. One is political buy-in, the need for high-level political buy-in. The other is more specific operational um, uh, tactics, more specific operational um, uh, focus on how we can have a response to this that is commensurate with the level of the risk. Uh, we can't rely on wildlife rangers who don't have the same equipment, don't have the same training as those that they're fighting. Um, so here I think there's a recognition of that. Um, and not only is there a recognition through side events, but a very clear recognition uh, with very specific um, um, decisions and resolutions taken both by the Standing Committee and by the Conference of the Parties. So for me, where I sit, I think we've seen significant progress made here, but it's going to be a long, tough fight. You know, we're really up against a very formidable opponent or opponents uh, in winning this. But I think the Conference of the Parties uh, and the Standing Committee have taken significant measures in the right direction to uh, uh, combat this uh, illicit trade. And then one of those measures was related to the forensics, and I know um, that's that's incredibly significant in terms of resolving that samples of ivory from large seizures over half a ton should be analyzed for their DNA, which would allow um, one to identify potential hot spots for enforcement. So it's very positive, these large-scale seizures, and we know from the um, Mike Anitas reports. Mike being the monitoring legal killing of elephants and Itis being the uh, elephant trade information system. And we know from the um, Mike Anitas reports um, that the Anitas in particular, large-scale seizures are up. Um, this is an indicator that uh, organised crime is involved because it's much harder to shift large quantities uh, of ivory across multiple international borders. So this um, emphasis on looking at large-scale seizures, looking at uh, better use of forensics, DNA, to assist uh, those who are involved in taking enforcement action is an extremely positive uh, step in the right direction. And then I know there was some controversy regarding the idea of analysing past seizures. 
um, with Thailand in particular, asking to make this more optional by including the language samples would be um, sent if possible. Why, why not do this if countries are serious about stopping the illicit trade? I would say all countries are serious about stopping the illicit trade. There's also resourcing issues that we need to be aware of. Um, and there are states that want to move forward and say, how can we put in place better measures as we move forward? But there you'd have to ask the particular states concerned. And in any negotiation, international negotiation, there is a multiplicity of views that need to be reconciled. And a decision or, or a uh, resolution is a reflection of whether parties are prepared collectively to agree or if it goes to a vote through a two-third majority. So there is always a degree of give and take here, taking into account multiplicity of perspectives. Uh, but here, the overwhelming um, thrust of all of these decisions and resolutions is very positive and constructive and upping the ante both in terms of the political engagement and in terms of the operational response. Uh, individuals... Um, or different countries may have preferred to see something a little bit stronger, something a little bit weaker, something in, something out. But ultimately, I think we have to recognise that we've landed in a very positive space here with the level of engagement um, and the, the direction these decisions are taking uh, in terms of being much more specific in terms of the sorts of measures that need to be taken, um, looking at techniques that have been deployed across other um, uh, crime areas such as illicit trade in narcotics, recognising that we need to start to deploy these sorts of techniques if we're going to um, tackle wildlife crime and, and acknowledge that it's a serious crime involving uh, people that are well-armed, well-resourced, very savvy, that if we're going to take them on, we need to use the sorts of tactics that are going to actually enable us to have some uh, hope of success. And then if a country, you know, doesn't ultimately send in their samples, I guess there's a concern that perhaps ivory from past seizures might actually have been put back into the illicit market. Is that a possibility? There's all sorts of scenarios you can come up with looking forward. So somebody could do this, somebody could do that. I think we can speculate for a long time about what may or may not be possible. The concerns that are expressed in terms of how you ensure that um, seized ivory is not leaked into trade or that uh, domestic markets are not used as a way of laundering uh, illegally traded ivory. These are all legitimate issues. How the parties choose to deal with them is a matter of negotiation between the, the parties at a conference. Uh, that's what they've done. I think what we need to look at is, you know, you can say perhaps this could have been a bit tighter, perhaps that was too tight, I would have preferred this, I would have preferred that. The ultimate result here is very positive and heading in the right direction. And I think that is what the overwhelming outcome of this conference is, both in terms of political outcomes and in terms of operational outcomes. It is in the right, heading in the right direction. There's much more specificity here than you've seen in previous COPs. We've seen states identified through the Standing Committee that will have to respond on particular issues, um, as well as in decisions of the Conference of the Parties. So I would say let's look at the overall package of measures. Let's look at that in the context of the, of the convention and where it's been and where it's going. And this is a very positive outcome. And then regarding the level of political engagement, and I guess were the central, because a lot of the current spikes in poaching are in Central Africa, was that level of political engagement there in this, among the Central African governments? Well, we had 170 governments in attendance, uh, which I think is a record number of parties that have participated. We also had three non-parties. So the level of engagement and the 
number of uh, states participating in both committees one and two was extremely high. And these decisions were taken by consensus. So I would say on the face of the record, there is engagement by, by all parties concerned. Any other milestone moments regarding this uh, meeting? I mean, there's, there's so many of them. You could go through the, the decisions there. Uh, we could speak for probably half an hour on a whole range of decisions. The adoption of the uh, revised vision, uh, which has now been extended from 2013 to 2020, that for the first time includes specific reference to targets set by another convention, by the Convention on Biological Diversity. There's an acknowledgement that full implementation of our convention is required in order to achieve the AACHI targets that came out of CBD COP10, uh, linking us to those targets that were adopted under the Convention on Biological Diversity is another way of firstly demonstrating the overall value of this convention towards um, conservation and sustainable use of biodiversity, but it also opens up avenues for uh, accessing financing under the Global Environment Facility in particular. Very positive. We could talk about that for a long time. The IPBS, uh, the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, we are now directly linked to that in terms of feeding our priorities into that process, including our priorities on capacity building with an emphasis on the importance of supporting non-detriment findings. There's a decision on the Global Environment Facility requesting it to widen its biodiversity uh, window to better reflect uh, uh, states or countries' priorities that may relate to specific species. We've seen an extraordinarily interesting resolution on livelihoods. For the first time, we have a resolution on non-detriment findings, providing uh, guidance to our parties. That was a bit of a no-go zone before, but we now have a resolution providing guidance on non-detriment findings. We've referred to introduction from the sea. took 40 years, but that's now been resolved. We had uh, decisions on electronic permitting. We had significant decisions on enforcement, uh, including recognising the role of the International Consortium on Combating Wildlife Crime. We've mentioned significant decisions on elephants and rhinos. We also had decisions on big cats, uh, on great apes, and a decision that will uh, see um, some very important work uh, undertaken with respect to illegal trade in cheetahs. So there is a whole suite of extraordinarily uh, far-reaching and important decisions that were taken relating to resolutions and decisions under this, uh, under this conference of the parties. Um, we could spend a lot of time on each one of them. But when you look at the whole package... The resolutions, the decisions, the listings, and everything that occurred through 65 side events, this was a significant meeting. Um, and we managed to get through it all in nine days without any hiccups with documents or with voting or with anything else. So there, uh, again, we pay credit to the, the host government, uh, the Kingdom of Thailand. And I also pay credit to each and every staff member of the Secretariat for the extraordinary effort that they put in and the long, hard hours they've put in uh, to making sure this COP was going to be well prepared for, uh, that parties would have everything they need to make well-informed decisions and their hard work paid off. So I, I commend uh, each one of them and all the other staff that we seconded for this event, the um, uh, interpreters, uh, the translators, the rapporteurs, uh, assistants with documents, etc. They They actually were outside of the limelight. You didn't see them very often, but without their hard work, this conference could not have been a success. So uh, I commend them for their extraordinary work as well.
For my last question, I'd like to ask about financing and engagement by financial institutions. I think we've seen some significant milestones. I, I do want to emphasize financing. For the first time uh, in the history of CITES, we saw the Asian Development Bank, African Development Bank, Global Environment Facility and UN Development Program all participating, all looking at investing in the implementation of the convention. We also had the World Bank in attendance, uh, including through the Global Tiger Initiative, where they promoted their business model. So we had five major institutions there, all of which have access to finance, all of which are interested in investing in societies to assist with implementation. And we can't um, underestimate the importance of that. This convention has traditionally been underinvested in by the international community. It has not had access to a financial mechanism like some other conventions have had. It's had to rely upon um, uh, less resources than perhaps have gone into to other conventions, such as the Montreal Protocol. What we've seen here, though, is a direct and serious engagement by those who have access to finance and a clear expression of intent to start providing financing uh, to help implement this convention. That's an extraordinarily positive sign. And when you blend that together with the decisions and the resolutions and the listings that have been taken, that's uh, an extraordinarily uh, important and significant outcome uh, from this conference of the parties. Well, thank you very much for talking with me. I appreciate it. Thank you for your interest. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with CITES Secretary General John Scanlon. I'm Laurel Nimi, and this has been The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. Thanks for listening.